The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Stan Goldberg, Ph.D., Professor Emeritus of Communicative Communicative Disorders at San Francisco State University and author of the new book, Loving, Supporting, and Caring for the Cancer Patient. He is a prolific, award-winning writer, editorial consultant, and recognized expert in the area of cancer support, end-of-life issues, caregiving, chronic illness, aging, and change. Welcome to the show, Stan. Nice to have you on this morning. Well, thank you for having me on, Catherine. I just want to read a little intro to your book, and and then obviously you and I can begin to talk about it. But anyone who has been given a cancer diagnosis makes an immediate recalibration of every previously held ambition. Friends and loved ones often don't understand how priorities held for a lifetime can change overnight when someone learns that he or she has cancer. Reactions to a cancer diagnosis, regardless of the prognosis, will vary according to personality, but each person will experience an onslaught of fear, worry, and uncertainty. And Stan, I assume in your experience, you would agree that that really is the case. Uh, Yeah, I was diagnosed with prostate cancer 13 years ago and with an uncertain prognosis. And I think that if I had to look at at different times in my life when everything changed, that would have to be right close to the top is when I received that diagnosis. So it's before and after, kind of. There was a (laughs) book written by... I I think that's an important concept for uh, for caregivers or loved ones of someone living with cancer to understand is that you know there's there's a, uh, there's lots of different effects from different kinds of diseases uh, with most of them physicians can say yeah you know we've got it it's done you don't have to worry about that but there's another set of illnesses and cancer fits right at the top where there's a certain amount of ins- of uncertainty. Uh, in terms of what the progress is going to be, what the prognosis of the illness, uh, and the changes that have to be made. Those of us who live with cancer uh, are very well aware of of how this uncertainty changes our lives. It changes values, relationships, expectations, almost everything. Stan, do you think the reason is, I think you you mentioned that cancer would be one of those that, that brings on all of these emotions and feelings. I would almost say, isn't that the only one? Because there's something about cancer, and maybe you can talk about that, that's very different than, let's say, heart disease or diabetes or something more structural or another chronic kind of disease, which you can, you know, maybe be able to live with for long periods of time. Because you think sometimes, or one thinks that the cancer's all gone, and then suddenly two, three, four, five years later, it's back, and even worse than it was before. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I know that, I mean, I've, I've counseled people that have had very minor skin cancer, 
and those that have had uh, stage 4 ovarian cancer, and the whole range through that. And what, what I found is that whether you have a very mild diagnosis, if there could be anything like that, or, or something more acute and prolonged, there's always that fear that no matter what the physician says to you, that he got all the cancer or it was eliminated or you're cured, very few of us really have in our mind it's gone. And that's just by the nature of cancer. If, if there is one cancer cell there's left, there's always the possibility that it can divide and start growing again. So it's, it's a feeling of this uncertainty uh, that I don't think people who, who have never had cancer can you know, understand. It's, it's like, you know, even though I have been without any serious episodes in 13 years, and that's because I'm continually taking drugs to, to uh, stop the strength of the cancer, I never know when the drugs will stop. And, and that's the same kinds of fears that most people living with cancer have, is what if they didn't get all of it? So how do you deal with that? I mean, how do you, I'm thinking of you waking up every morning, you're on medication, you're on drugs. Do you ever awake in the morning and not think about having cancer? And then if you do every day, how do you handle that? Because that too, if you're worried and you're under that kind of stress emotionally, that affects it, your body in a way that is, distra- is, is stressful, is not necessarily good for, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, I think that that is an excellent point. I, I think back to the 13 years. I'm sure there were some days when I didn't think about my cancer. Um, but I would say most days, at least once, I do. And, you know, the, the, the question of how do you deal with it is something that I, I think that, that's where most of the effort in counseling cancer patients need, need to be focused on. You know, we, we can pretend that we are cancer survivors, and that's a term that I really don't like, and I'll explain a little <laughs> bit that later. But, you know, we, we battle, you know, the cancer in two different ways. We battle it physically, and we also battle it emotionally. If I'm not sure how long I have to live, that's going to change many things. <clears throat> and if I allow it to, it can be very depressing. But what what I have done and what I counsel people to do is, you know, you can focus on the uncertainty of how long you'll be alive, or you can focus on making every day as important, as meaningful, and as joyful as you can. Now, now one of the things that that I learned, I, I was a hospice bedside volunteer for eight years, and there are many things my, my patients taught me. And one of them was to focus on the journey, not on that destination. When I wake up every morning, what I want to think about is, what can I do today to make my life better? Or phrased in another way, if I will die in two days or in one day, what should I do now? What would I choose to do? What I found from my patients is they looked at those things that would allow them to ease into death uh, in a way that was going to be meaningful to them. So there's many things that, that I try to do every day, knowing that I don't know how much longer I have to live, even though it appears I'm healthy. So I, I try not to 
do unskillful things. I try not to say hurtful words to people. I try to finish up everything that I've started. So, you know, if it comes to the point where I know I don't have much time left, I can look back and say, okay, I may not have accomplished everything I wanted, but I sure have done some good things. But when you're, as you're t- describing it, I'm thinking, do you have to be or do you feel like I have to monitor everything I do every day? Is there any spontaneity to this or do I have to wake up and say, OK, this has to be a day that's going to be productive and special and good? Or can you just kind of let go a little bit, too? You know, it or sure. does it? Yeah. 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 I don't I don't I've never viewed my life as, as being scheduled or rigid. Uh, if anything, it's the reverse of that. But, you know, if you think about, you know, as you're doing things, there's an old story about a a monk who was becoming feeble-minded. And he couldn't remember at the end of the day whether, whether whether it was a good day for him or not, whether he did virtuous acts. So another monk said, here's two little bags of stones. One is black and one is white. If you do something that you think is really good, put a white stone in your pocket. If you do something that you regret, put a black stone. And at the end of the day, count up the whites and blacks. If you've had more whites than blacks, it was a good day. If you have more blacks than whites, it says you need to think about doing things differently tomorrow. And that, that's pretty much how I look at my life. I, I don't try to monitor every single thing I do. But, you know, we, we get a sense of, of what's right and what's wrong. You know, if, if I'm walking down the street and I see a homeless person, I, stand, I sit down and I talk with him, you know, it was, that's spontaneous. I can walk away from that and say, that was a good thing I did. You know, if I yell at a, at a telemarketer who calls me because they're disturbing the sixth game of the World Series that happened last <laughs> night. That sounds like my day, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can look back and I say, you know, I really shouldn't have, have done that. You know, the person is just trying to learn, earn a living. So it's those kinds of things. You look at the end of the day and say, do I have more whites than blacks? If I do, it was a good day. What about the grieving process, though? You know, I've spoken to a lot of, uh, on the radio and, and family and friends and colleagues and everybody about uh, you know, some people will say, oh, it's the cancer. My cancer diagnosis was the best thing that ever happened to me because it did make me aware of my life and my relationships. And But some people will say it's not the best thing that ever happened to me. You know, I would never wish this on anyone or myself, but I deal with it and I do what I have to do. So, I mean, when you're first, and you mentioned when you were first diagnosed, it's like everything changes. Um, but you do kind of, don't you have to go through the process of at first, I, of the loss and the grief and, the, and, and, and all of that before you can kind of follow the path that you're talking about? Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I think I'm not sure that I've ever learned anything important in life when things were easy for me. You know, there's a certain amount of adversity I think is necessary in order to understand important lessons. But Cancer is not one I would wish on anybody. And I would have prefer- I learned a lot from cancer, and I still am every day. But I would have preferred to learn it from from a crusty old uncle's, you know, sitting in a bar having a beer, <laughs> rather than having to deal with cancer on a daily basis. In terms of grieving, uh, I think that there, there's there's different ways of grieving losses. I mean, if there's anything that cancer is associated with, it's loss. 
you know, it's a loss of abilities, it's a loss of relationships, it's a loss of the future. And the question then becomes, how do, how do I deal with that, knowing that, you know, these losses will probably continue to occur? I no longer can, can fly fish in the wilderness by myself. That was a major part of my life. And, you know, I grieved that for a long period of time. And I think grieving those kinds of losses with cancer led me to maybe a different understanding of how to get over grief. Um, when I was no, no, no longer able to do that and, and other things, uh, I, it was very depressing. You know, I thought this is not how I want to lead the rest of my life. And what I needed to do, though, is think, okay, what was it about what I lost that is causing me so much pain? And it wasn't necessarily standing in the middle of, of a pristine river casting to fish in, in a beautiful countryside, but rather it was the feeling that it gave me. And that led me to, to thinking about, okay, there's many losses I have. I can grieve the loss, or I can think about what I need to do to replace that emotion. And starting with, with the inability to fly fish alone, I thought, okay, it's serenity that I'm missing. And how can I regain serenity in my life? Well, it took a number of years, and I finally realized that there were certain things that were important, and it gave me the same feeling. And one of those was crafting Native American flutes and playing them, and that's what I do isn't quite the same as fly fishing in a Montana stream, but it comes close. So I think for, for all losses, what people need to think about is this, I, this is something that was important to my life. It may have been part of my identity. I can either feel terrible about it or I can think about what could replace that, not necessarily a direct replacement. Um, you know, playing a flute is not a replacement for fly fishing, um, but it's looking for that lost emotion. And, and that's what I do, and that's what I counsel people to do. Yeah, that's a, I think that's really an important a key point, I guess, and something that, well, it sort of ties in with your book or does tie in with your book. If you're a caregiver, to be able to understand that, whether you're a caregiver and it's a Whoever, whatever your relationship is to the person who's diagnosed with cancer. But I had one, one thought came to mind was, how do you reconcile, you know, you talk about spending your time in a way, in the best way possible, because you don't know how much time you have left. But what about all the time that's spent having to go to the hospital, having to take tests, having to wait to see what the results of the tests are, and really a lot of time, even not as an inpatient or in hospice, but just living at home and continually having to get treatment and care. And that's a lot of time spent when maybe you want to be with your flute or something else, or, but you do have to kind of tie that in, don't you? Also, it seems to me that always seems to be an issue with, with people that I know who have been diagnosed. Yeah, I, and, and it is. Uh, I mean, fortunately for me, uh, my intervention is I have an injection once every six months, and uh, with that, I may feel a little nauseous and not very pleasant to be around for about two or three days, and that's about it. But I, you know, there's other patients that I've worked with um, who are undergoing chemotherapy or, or other uh, methods in order to to control the cancer, and you know, they they often think about one of two choices. You know, to either just accept what's happening and feel depressed about it 
or you take the, the British approach, which is a stiff upper lip, and say, I'm battling through this. Well, I think there's a, a third way, and that's what I call adaptation. You know, for me, I know that my life will never be the same as it was prior to my cancer diagnosis. And I've accepted that, but I'm not necessarily depressed about it. What I do is say, okay, that's reality. That's not going to change. How can I adapt to make the best possible uh, situation of that? So when on those days when, let's say, when I come back uh, after a, a hormone injection and I'm fe- feeling miserable, well, that would be, instead of just feeling terrible, that might be a good day to, to catch up on some things in the house that don't take <clears throat> much thinking. So it's, it's adapting to reality, I think, is, is very important in order to avoid the depression that's often associated with a cancer diagnosis. So what happens like you in your relationships? Because obviously those are going to be affected, whether, you know, your uh, children, spouses, friends, who, whomever it is. How did your diagnosis, what you said, 12 years ago, prostate well, cancer? It, yeah, yeah. It, it was a, let me give you just a little tiny background. Before I was diagnosed, I was a full professor at San Francisco State University. And um, pretty much, you know, my personality fit what, what you would usually think about as a, a professorial t- type person. Uh, I was very objective. I was not emotional at all. I probably was not very introspective. Um, and it was, uh, I think, that the way that I dealt with life was a reflection of my training as, as a university professor. So, you know, very rigid, very uh, unfeeling, or at least outwardly unfeeling. And uh, my life was totally shaken up by the diagnosis. And uh, I was having trouble dealing with the diagnosis because I really didn't want to think about emotionally what was going to be happening to me. And that affected my relationships with everyone. And fortunately, I was able to realize what I was doing to other people. And as a result, there was a radical change in my personality. I'm, I have no problems now showing my emotions, writing about you know, what I've been going through with my cancer, and sharing some of those difficult feelings that, that clients have. So it, it changed me very much that way. The other way it changed me was I had always focused on goals. You know, as, as a university professor, there was books I wanted to write. There were uh, articles and research I wanted to do. And not knowing whether I'd have time to do that, I realized it's more important to focus on the journey rather than the destination. And that, that pretty much changed how I do a lot of different things. So I, I really no longer care if I'm a proficient uh, Native American flute player. I'm more interested in, can I play that next note perfectly? So those are the kinds of changes. And uh, so there are benefits, I would say, uh, from having to deal with life-threatening issues. But again, I would have preferred to learn these in any other way other than a cancer (laughs) diagnosis. Well, you did with your cancer diagnosis. Are there people or have there been people in your life who have not been able to stay with you, to, who haven't been able to adapt, as you say, be adaptive in terms of, well, you've changed 
you, just your personality or the way you relate to the world. So are there people, in, significant people in your life who said goodbye because they, really, because they were not able to adapt to you and, your, and, and you having cancer? Yeah, I, I had a, uh, an aunt, this was a number of years ago, um, who had uh, a form of brain cancer that was treatable. I'm not sure about the prognosis because this was a long time ago. Uh, but she refused to accept uh, the seriousness of it, and she was living in California. She went to Mexico for laetrile injections. And um, the result was uh, it was very difficult for her, for her family, and you know she did die um, fairly shortly after that. Well, the problem that I think that she and a lot of other patients have is when you have difficulty dealing with the, with the possibility that your cancer may be terminal, what it tends to do, it pushes off those things that are going to be important at the end of your life. Uh, so you don't want to deal with it. Um, my mother had a very good friend with stomach cancer. Uh, it was clearly terminal, and she refused to deal with it. And, you know, all of the friends would gather and be supportive of her. The difficulty was that, you know, as she got closer to dying, she realized there was many things that she, that she should have done, many things she should have said to people that she just wasn't going to have time to do. So for me, that's the most crucial issue. If you have difficulty accepting your diagnosis, you may put off doing things that can be crucial to a more peaceful death. But I'm, I'm sort of looking at it from the other side. What about the relationships? Let's say, well, you've described close people in your life who have been diagnosed and not been able to accept it. But what about the people, let's say, in your life who were not able to accept you? Because people shy away from it. They're afraid. They don't know what to say. Maybe they, uh, colleagues or uh, even friends who just sort of give up on you because you have a cancer diagnosis. Or uh, Yeah, I've been fortunate. I've, I've never had anybody back away from me, at least that, that I know of. But it, it is, you know, it does happen, and I, I've talked to many cancer patients who felt that. Um, you know, I think that there are, there, there's different approaches to that. You can think about, well, what can I do to retain this relationship? Uh, how can I make this person feel more comfortable with my cancer? And, you know, I think that's, that's an approach that some people take. They believe that the relationship is important enough for them to, to put that out. But there's also the question of if I don't know how much time I have left or even if I have a long time and I'm going to be undergoing some disabling changes, do I really want to spend my time focusing on retaining a relationship where the person doesn't understand what, what's going, what I'm going through? And the answer for many people is no. You know, there comes a time when you have to sort of prioritize what's important to you. Uh, if your feelings of acceptability is, has a higher priority than convincing someone um, that you should be retained as a friend, you know, then it's time to let go. 
you let go of that of that relationship and you focus on what's more important. Yes. So there there isn't you know any one uh, specific way of dealing with it, but what's most important is I think for the cancer patient is to think about how important is this relationship to me if I have to struggle with this person for them to understand what I'm going through. Yeah, it's enervating. It's too much. As you say, you don't know how much time you have left, and that's not one, usually the way you would want to spend it. Now, going back yes. to the action, the, and this is getting back to your book, but uh, supporting the cancer patient, and you have a, a few suggestions that we can talk about. We, only, we don't have that much time left, but you say actions are better than words, uh, and never to uh, miss the opportunity to, if if you're caring for the uh, person with cancer to express your compassion. I, I think people sometimes find that difficult. Like, I don't know what to say. I don't want to sound like I'm going to, that I feel sorry for them, that, uh, you know, I don't want to make it sound worse than it is. And and so people very often, I, I watch them as a social worker and in hospitals and hospice, sort of picking their words and, and not just coming out. And if it's said in good faith, people will accept it uh, most of the time. Uh, but I think that, very often others do struggle with how do I communicate with somebody who has cancer? Yeah, well, you know, as, as a retired speech and language pathologist, you know, people wouldn't, don't expect me to say, don't worry about the words, but don't. You know, uh, the words that almost everybody uses when they hear about a cancer diagnosis is virtually the same. I'm so sorry. And it's true compassion. People with cancer understand that. But what... I found, and what patients with cancer find more important, is to take those words, whatever you use, whatever you say, and transform them into something that's truly helpful. Giving a good example, a few months ago, a good friend of mine started uh, chemotherapy, and I knew that after her session, uh, she would be very weak. So instead of saying to her when she told me about the, uh, the injections, instead of, instead of saying, I'm so sorry to hear you have to go through that, what I said to her was, I know you're going to be tired the next day, and I know that day is when you usually do your shopping. I will be over at 9 o'clock. I will shop with you. We'll bring the, f- the food home. I'll put it away, and then I'll pay some of your bills. Well, that to her was so much significantly important than more important than anything I could have said. So if, if you're in that position, if you, know, if you know someone that either just had a cancer diagnosis or will be getting some form of treatment that's going to be difficult for them, yes, definitely tell them how sorry you are for what they're going through, but make it very specific. Specificity, um, I was told by, by people with cancer, and also I know from my own experience, is vitally important. Do that, and you don't have to worry about the words. Yeah, I I think that's good advice. I have one of uh, my closest friends is diagnosed with uh, stage four cancer, and one of the things every time I talk to her or text her, I you know I want to inquire you know how's she doing, and and then I I just once said, do you want me to keep asking you how you're doing? Is that annoying, or or do you want? Sometimes I would just ignore it and talk about just what we always talk about, you know, stuff we do. She said, you know, you're the easiest person to talk to. She said, I tell you what I want to tell you, and then I like to go on and just talk about you know the stuff we always talked about because and Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, but 
don't you don't have to be fearful of you know whether you're asking the right question or you know tuned into me at the right time. So I think by me just saying it was helpful and sort of cleared the air for both of us in terms of it, it, our, not only yeah. was helpful, but what you were saying to her is you're not the label, you're not the cancer. You know, cancer is a part of, of who you are, and I'm willing to deal with that and everything else about our relationship. So, you know, what you did was perfect. Great. Well, we have to say goodbye, So, uh, you know, but your book is out there on Amazon, bookstores everywhere, Loving, Supporting, and Caring for the Cancer Patient, Stan Goldberg, Ph.D. Uh, Stan, is there a website that we can go to also yes, for more information? I have a website, and it's Stan Goldberg Writer, W-R-I-T-E-R, Dot com, And on that website, there are over 200 free articles on aging, end-of-life issues, Alzheimer's, dementia, um, the, the issues that we don't really want to talk about, <laughs> uh, but have to face. So they're all there at StanGoldbergWriter.com. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Uh, well, we're going to take you having me. We're going to take a short break. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Uh, joining me this morning is Leslie Michelson, JD, founder, chairman, and CEO of Private Health Management, a unique patient-focused company that has helped thousands of people to obtain exceptional medical care. His new book, The Patient's Playbook, How to Save Your Life and the Lives of Those You Love, distills his three decades of experience as a medical case management expert into actionable steps and practical tools that will empower readers everywhere to achieve the best possible health outcome to health outcomes at every stage of life. Welcome to the show, Leslie. Nice to have you on this morning. Catherine, it's my privilege. Thank you. Well, as we were chatting just a little bit before we got on, I'm sitting here with your book in front of me. I have read it, The Patient's Playbook. Great book. And I have read several, I have many, many of these books, but I think your book is written, it's very practical, it's very simple, 
Uh, you give case examples, which I think obviously, or for me and for my, is key. So let's start, let's talk about it. Um, you've been working on this book, you said, for two years now. So it's very, it's a real comprehensive uh, guide, I would say, to, to uh, navigating your, one, navigating their health care. Oh, thank you, Catherine. You know, my life's mission has been helping people get the very best medical care. We all know that the healthcare system can be very scary, and we all become very deferential to our physicians, which is appropriate given how hard they work and how dedicated they are. But my mission in life is to teach people how to activate their consumer DNA, teach them how to be active patients, effective patients, and teach them how to partner with their physicians so that they can get the very best care. So how do we start? Where do we start? Let's, you know, maybe we should start with a case example, which, you know, you have a lot of uh, examples and stories in the book. Uh, give us an example of someone who is concerned or diagnosed with a disease. What do you do? Well, one of the things that we teach in the book is something I call the no mistake zone, which is a six-step process that I developed literally over decades. That can help everybody, regardless of your age, your income, your health status, get over the anxiety of being a patient, uh, the vulnerability you feel, and figure out how to get to very best medical care, whether it's you know, a cancer patient, someone who's got back pain, someone who's been in a bad car accident, needs a heart valve replaced. It's the exact same process that everybody can go through um, to convert the anxiety we all have into confidence, to take the paralysis that we all experience and convert it into constructive action. Okay, that's the overview. Now let's take it step by step. What do we do? Let's take a diagnosis. Sure, let's say there's somebody who's just been, you know, told they need um, emergency back surgery. They were, you know, they were they slipped on the ice in the winter, they fell off a step stool in the kitchen reaching for a can, and their back's in pain. What can they do? So the first thing is uh, to make sure that the diagnosis is accurate and specific. There's a lot of causes of back pain, some of which require very rapid surgery. We had a case like that just the other day where a woman had herniated a disc. It was a significant herniation. She was in terrible pain. It was not one of these cases that was going to get better with physical therapy or injections. We lined her up with the very best surgeon, and they went for it. So the first thing is to know what the cause of the pain is. The second step in the process, Catherine, is to learn and understand about when and why it needs to be treated. There's no better treatment than Mother Nature for so many different things. We call it the tincture of time. So there's certain things like pancreatic cancer, brain cancer, where you need to move very quickly. There are other things where just letting it wait for a while might be better. And and you need to talk to your physicians, talk to your primary care physician, specialists, and get a sense about that. We had a situation in Chicago some years ago in which a woman was told that she needed emergency neck surgery, very, very technically complex surgery, when in fact she had a couple of days or a couple of weeks to wait and use that time to get to someone who had the expertise to do it. So that's the second step. But before that, I think in the book you emphasize, because getting back to, like, you have to be, uh, know what you have and diagnose it accurately, but in order to do that, you go to a physician. And I think one of the key points that you make in the book is your primary care 
physician is really critical. You need to first contact that he or she is that if say you have terrible back pain, uh, whether it's chronic or it's an emergency, right? So you want to make that contact initially? Absolutely. It's the primary care physician, you're exactly right, who should be the quarterback of your healthcare team. That's the fundamental piece. And it disturbs me that many people today do not even have primary care physicians and get their health care either only from an urgent care clinic, which has a role and an important role, or emergency rooms. What you need is a primary care physician, somebody that you've got a strong and enduring relationship with, who's going to be your health care quarterback. Make sure you get the mammography that you need. Let you know if you're putting on a couple too many pounds, if your blood pressure is getting too high. And somebody who knows you, who can calibrate um, whether things have changed in your life and somebody you trust so that they can make sure that, you know, if they're telling you this is an emergency, you can believe it because you've got a strong relationship with them. So we teach in the book a three-step process for everybody to find an emergency care physician. Take out a, I'm sorry, a, a primary care physician. I misspoke. <clears throat> Take out a piece of paper. Write down the things that are important to you for that relationship. Talk to friends, coworkers, other doctors you have who you like. Ask them who they use and why they use them. Check, check out these physicians on websites and resources that are available on my website, patientsplaybook.com, to make sure that they're board certified and they don't have any sanctions. And then and here's the thing that people don't realize they can do, set up appointments to interview them. You would never hire a nanny, a babysitter. You never you know, select a school or do anything important without interviewing multiple potential providers. It's very important to do that for primary care. Okay, so we do that. And then very often, I know I'm one of these people, I, whatever my problem may be, I go to the primary care physician, I come home, and then I start Googling. And you talk about that in right. the book. So is Googling good or bad? Or what do we Google? Or <laughs> who? Yeah, where should our information come from? <laughs> So we all go online, right? Yeah, we all go online. And it can be very frightening because there's a lot of legitimate and incredibly helpful stuff online and free. And then there's a lot of stuff that makes no sense at all. So one of the things that I've done, and it's available free of charge to everybody, um, uh, on my website, patientsplaybook.com, is provide people lists of authoritative, legitimate sites. And these sites which are free to everybody, are incredibly helpful. Let's just take cancer as an example because so many people suffer from cancer. There's a terrific website called the National Cancer, uh, Co- uh, the, ne- the National cancer Cooperative Network, nccn.org, which is a group of about 25 of the major cancer centers in the world who come together and develop cancer treatment protocols, recommendations for all the major cancers, which are available free of charge to every patient in English and Spanish. So you can go to that website. It'll take you 20 seconds, download the recommendations, print them out, bring them into your physician, and use that as a discussion to figure out what would be best for you. There are so many resources like that. You know, we Americans are incredibly philanthropic people. We, we donate billions of dollars every year to disease-specific philanthropies. And there are wonderful organizations like the Prostate Cancer Foundation, PANCAN, the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, Komen for the Cure on Breast Cancer, BCAN for Bladder Cancer. And every one of these websites has objective, authoritative information 
for patients battling that disease, and many of them have individuals, volunteers, employees who are very knowledgeable about it, available a phone call away to help you and to do it free of charge, and yet we don't take advantage of it as often as we could. So I'm a big believer in tapping into those resources so that individual patients can learn about their disease, learn about the array of treatments, understand the pros and cons of different approaches. So that's the next step. And then the fifth step in getting to the no mistake zone, which is that place where you're comfortable and you've done everything you can, is to interview expert physicians in exactly what you have. So if you have breast cancer, you should be interviewing a number of experts who spend the bulk of their working lives, their careers, focused on breast cancer. Because you know what? It's a very complicated disease. The, the treatments for it are coming forward at an accelerating and explosive rate. There are so many better treatments available for every cancer, every disease today, than there were even five years ago, that you need an expert physician who is dedicated to patients battling what you're battling to be at your bedside. But what do you do? I I just want to, well, I I just want to stop you there for a minute because, okay, I, for instance, I live in New York City. So there's a wealth of hospitals, clinics, doctors to choose from in my backyard. But what if you live in a, in uh, Montana and you have a specific kind of, of cancer, let's say that you're going to need surgery and you say you should be interviewing the physicians, the surgeons, what do you, and what do you, how do you get there? What do you do? You can't be traveling all over the country. I mean, just from a practical point of view, how do you really cull out who are those surgeons at the best hospitals and and who have done the the most surgeries in your particular area, whatever you need. So from just, yeah. Yeah. yeah, Just practicalities. You know, we all have, you know, jobs and kids and parents and responsibilities. So, you know, you can't, you know, many people can't travel that far or for very long. So there's a variety of techniques I go through in the patient's playbook. And I talk about my podcasts, no mistake zone with Leslie Michelson. I could just, give you the, the, you know, the, the most preliminary and superficial view of that. So most Americans tend to live within an hour's drive of the 20 major cities. We've gotten to be a much more urban and suburban population. In every one of those cities, there is a major academic medical center. And if you have a serious medical issue, if you're battling a tough cancer, figure out how far you live from the nearest major city If you have employer-based insurance, most of those insurance plans are what are called PPO models, Preferred Provider Organization Models, and they have in-network and out-of-network provisions, and in-network is much, much cheaper for everyone. In every city, those PPO plans will have the major hospital as in-network, which means that you as an individual can go to that hospital and be treated without it costing you any more. So if you have something that's major, I strongly recommend that people make the drive. It's typically not going to be more than a couple of hours to get to see somebody who's got the specific expertise in what they have because they will be current with the latest technologies. They'll have had more experience in dealing with your disease. And if you should have a complication they will more likely than not have experienced something similar to it and know what to do about it. 
Now, what do you do when you get to the expert, the first one, and then you go to the second, and let's say you get two opinions and maybe three, and they don't agree, and one of them is very clearly, you know, a world-renowned, and he or she says, this is the diagnosis and what should be done, and the second one says something different, and the third one may be different or may agree with the first one, so what do you do? You know, we've got a case just like that right now with someone who's got a, uh, a stomach cancer in which there are three different distinguished experts who've recommended three very different courses of treatment for it. So that doesn't happen all that often, but you know, I talk in the patient's playbook and there's guidance on the website, patientsplaybook.com for how to handle it. So in essence, here's what it is. To go to a number of physicians to, with the specific expertise in your disease, and then use the online resources to qualify and help resolve those disparate recommendations. Because when you, there are websites that you can go to for each and every disease and general websites where you can get the guidelines that have been published by the most authoritative bodies, the medical associations, etc. And when you look at that, in virtually every instance, reviewing the, the authoritative literature online, which is lay-friendly, you can resolve these kinds of disagreements. So, for example, there are times where a prostate cancer patient gets a recommendation to have both external beam radiation as well as the implantation of these tiny little radioactive seeds. It's a technology called brachiotherapy. And sometimes, you know, radiation oncologists recommend that. It turns out that that particular combination of treatments is twice as expensive and not any more effective and has much more side effects than getting either one of those treatments. And it's awful. It should never happen. So if a physician is recommending that combination, if one goes to the resources that are made available online at the Prostate Cancer Foundation or the NCCN, you'll see that it makes no sense. Ten you'll be able to redirect yourself to people that are recommending treatments that are that have a scientific basis, an empirical basis, and that the most thoughtful and authoritative resources in the country believe are most effective. Here's another one. We kind of touched on it in the beginning, but you say, and I think this is really important, avoiding over-treatment, which you say can be even more dangerous than under-treatment. Uh, sometimes I find that physicians do a lot more over-treatment, and I'm reluctant to even go see the physician because I feel like maybe if I just took time with whatever the ache, and especially as one gets older, let it go for a while. You don't necessarily know <laughs> for how long, but I don't want to be treated for every ache and pain. So uh, I think that is an, an important point. Hey, Catherine, that's a, that's a very astute observation. Virtually every study that's been done on this topic finds that, you know, as much as 30%, one in three things, of everything that's done in the U.S. healthcare delivery system is either unnecessary or counterproductive. You know, our healthcare delivery system is the most expensive in the world on a per capita basis. It costs 50% more per person to provide healthcare in the U.S., than it does in any country in the world. And there's a lot of reasons for that. This whole political debate over Obamacare is in part about that. So there's clearly something wrong. And what's wrong in many instances is we continue to reimburse physicians on a fee-for-service basis. So the more they do, the more they get paid. 
And physicians are just like you and me and our neighbors and our kids and our parents and everybody else. You know, we are subject to the economic incentives that are put in front of us. And salespeople who work on a commission are going to sell more than those who don't. It's just axiomatic. So it's always important to be as guarded about overtreatment as you need to be about undertreatment. Because overtreatment is not risk-free. Every surgery entails risk. Every single drug involves side effects, particularly when you're on multiple drugs. So when people activate their consumer DNA and they understand that they need to become active, that they need to partner with their physicians, that they need to learn about their disease, they can make sure that they don't become one of those statistics. You know, we have in America, Catherine, the very best health care in the universe. No one has ever been able to deliver the quality of care that we can do at our highest level. But at the same time, our system is very flawed. It turns out that medical error, preventable medical error, is the third leading cause of death in the United States, right after heart disease and cancer. And that Diagnostic error probably accounts for taking the lives of 40 to 80,000 Americans each and every year. So one needs to be vigilant, one needs to become educated, and one needs to, to develop the same sense of purchasing and consumerism that we use when we lease a car, when we get an apartment, when we plan a vacation, when we figure out where to get some sushi on Saturday night. Because the resources are available online, and each and every American, regardless of their income, regardless of their age, regardless of their health status, can access them and get themselves better care. Yeah. Well, I think it's, you know, the res- we have the best resources, the best care, as you say, bar any in the rest of the world. But just because we have the resources doesn't mean we have to overuse them. We have the best food probably, too, but we overeat. It's the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's available. It's a good analogy. Yeah. yeah. But, and uh, and overtreatment th- is at least as dangerous as overeating. Exactly. You know, we have an obesity epidemic in this country. One in three Americans is diabetic. Nine percent of the country, I'm sorry, one in three Americans is overweight or obese, and nine percent of the entire country has diabetes, which is related to that. And so consuming more is not necessarily better. And there are physicians, and I think it's a, it's a minority of all physicians who tend to overtreat. And it's incumbent on the individual, nobody else, to learn how to become a better patient, to be able to detect that, and to have the information, the expertise, and the courage to resist it. And and that's kind of what I teach in the patient's playbook. So what we've done in the book is given people a whole array of tools and techniques of resources and approaches. We model the kind of conversation a patient can have with a physician when they're worried about being overtreated. And I want to be very clear with you and all of your listeners. This is something that anybody can do. I've seen people from all walks of life, people who very low income people, people who have virtually no education, figure out how to do this. It sounds intimidating. It sounds hard. But I spent years figuring it out. I spent years writing the patient's playbook so that it becomes easy, and absolutely everybody can do it. Yeah, I would agree with you. And if you read the book, 
You can practice what's in the book before you actually go, just like you're practicing for a play and practicing being comfortable with asking those kinds of questions that you talk about in the book to the physician. I mean, it takes practice. You know, you don't have to be terrified and you'll be less terrified if you just rehearse. Um, and, I think, and, I'll, yeah. and I'll give you a tip for people who are scared. And a lot of people are legitimately. Bring somebody with you to the doctor's office. There isn't a physician in the country that isn't going to permit you to do that. So... You know, bring your husband, bring a colleague, bring a neighbor, bring a coworker, bring somebody you know from church who you trust, who really cares about you, so that when you're vulnerable and you're in that paper-thin gown, you know, in your skivvies, in a cold room waiting for a doctor who comes in in a white coat, and, and we all get nervous when that happens, you've got somebody with you. And when you do that, you'll feel so much more comfortable. It's somebody with a pen and a pad who can take notes as the doctor is answering questions so that when you get home, you sit at the kitchen table and are talking about what to do, you'll have that information. You can go to the websites that are available and we reference on patientsplaybook.com, get that information. When you do all those things, I guarantee you the proper path will emerge and you'll feel more confident and that anxiety will be placed with confidence. And one other point, maybe this, we only have a couple minutes left, but I just, because I think this is key and one of the things that many doctor's offices do, maybe not all of them now, they are changing, but you get there and they want, they give you a piece of paper, which is kind of obsolete anyway, and want you to jot down your whole family health history. As you're sitting there, first of all, anxious about being there and anxious about whatever is wrong with you, and you're supposed to remember anecdotally what these, your family history, not a good way to do it. I mean, how, isn't there another way to do it? I, so that they have that, in, yeah. It's a good question. So what we talk about in the patient's playbook, and I spent years figuring out for people, is two things that literally everybody can do starting right now, is, is collect all of their medical records and write down their own personal medical history. What kinds of surgeries have you had? What kinds of diagnoses have you had over the years? Have you had anesthesia? What was it? What medications are you on right now? <clears throat> What, um, what allergies do you have? Who should be called in the event of an emergency? Have a roster of the physicians who are treating you. What is their expertise? What are their phone numbers? Put all that information on a piece of paper and have it available in a file in your office. And if you're technologically, if you're digital, put it on your phone so that you can access it all the time. And then you know, we're getting to the holiday time of the year, Catherine, where we all get together with relatives. This is a good time to put together a family medical history because we're learning so much more today about the relationship of DNA and genetics and hereditary issues to the causation of disease. It turns out there are a number of cancers that have a hereditary component, autoimmune diseases that have hereditary components. And sit down with your, particularly your elderly relatives. What did grandpa really die of? I know Aunt Sally was sick for many years... what Let's did see, you we, have? Well, you know, we have to say goodbye, but are you going to be the most popular person at Thanksgiving? Or <laughs> let's talk about our diseases and what everybody in the family has died of. I think it's a good idea, but I think you, well, I, I'm you know, picturing the scenario. There's a, there's a positive way to do it. This is, you know, everybody loves talking about the family history. That's just true. put it in that context. Can you tell me more about Grandpa? I barely remember him. You know, what did he do for a living? Where did he live? How long? Uh, and what did he die from? 
That's true. And, we do have to and, say goodbye. This is The Patient's Playbook. It's a great book. It really is. Uh, Amazon.com, bookstores everywhere. Uh, Leslie Michelson. Um, just give us quickly the website we can go to. Thank you so much, Catherine. The website to go to is patientsplaybook.com. You can also download my podcast, The No Mistake Zone with Leslie Michelson. And I want this to the, be, be the beginning of a dialogue. So you can email me at Leslie, L-E-S-L-I-E, at nomistakezone.com. Catherine, thank you so much. Thank you so much. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Uh, have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 